Section three of Gleanings in Buddha Fields. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in February two thousand eighteen. Gleanings in Buddha Fields by Lafcadio Hearn. Chapter three Notes of a Trip to Kyoto. Part one. One. it had been intended to celebrate in spring the eleven hundredth anniversary of the foundation of kyoto but the outbreak of pestilence caused postponement of the festival to the autumn and the celebration began on the fifteenth of the tenth month little festival medals of nickel made to be pinned to the breast like military decorations were for sale at half a yen each these medals entitled the wearers to special cheap fares on all the japanese railroad and steamship lines and to other desirable privileges such as free entrance to wonderful palaces gardens and temples on the twenty third of october i found myself in possession of a medal and journeying to kyoto by the first morning train which was overcrowded with people eager to witness the great historical processions announced for the twenty-fourth and twenty-fifth many had to travel standing but the crowd was good-natured and merry a number of my fellow-passengers were osaka geisha going to the festival they diverted themselves by singing songs and by playing ken with some male acquaintances and their kittenish pranks and funny cries kept everybody amused one had an extraordinary voice with which she could twitter like a sparrow you can always tell by the voices of women conversing anywhere in a hotel for example if there happen to be any geisha among them because the peculiar timbre given by professional training is immediately recognizable the wonderful character of that training however is fairly manifested only when the really professional tones of the voice are used falsetto tones never touching but often curiously sweet now the street singers the poor blind women who sing ballads with the natural voice only use tones that draw tears the voice is generally a powerful contralto and the deep tones are the tones that touch the falsetto tones of the geisha rise into a treble above the natural range of the adult voice and as penetrating as a bird's in a banquet hall full of guests you can distinctly hear above all the sound of drums and shamisen and chatter and laughter the thin sweet cry of the geisha playing ken futatsu 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 while you may be quite unable to hear the shouted response of the man she plays with mitsu 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 two the first surprise with which kyoto greeted her visitors was the beauty of her festival decorations every street had been prepared for illumination before each house had been planted a new lantern-post of unpainted wood from which a lantern bearing some appropriate design was suspended there were also national flags and sprigs of pine above each entrance but the lanterns made the charm of the display in each section of street they were of the same form and were fixed at exactly the same height 
and were protected from possible bad weather by the same kind of covering. But in different streets the lanterns were different. In some of the wide thoroughfares they were very large, and while in some streets each was sheltered by a little wooden awning, in others every lantern had a Japanese paper umbrella spread and fastened above it. There was no pageant on the morning of my arrival, and I spent a couple of hours delightfully at the festival exhibition of Kakemono in the imperial summer palace called Omuro Gosho. Unlike the professional art display which I had seen in the spring, this represented chiefly the work of students, and I found it incomparably more original and attractive. Nearly all the pictures, thousands in number, were for sale, at prices ranging from three to fifty yen, and it was impossible not to buy to the limit of one's purse. There were studies of nature evidently made on the spot, such as a glimpse of hazy autumn rice-fields, with dragonflies darting over the drooping grain, maples crimsoning above a tremendous gorge, ranges of peaks steeped in morning mist, and a peasant's cottage perched on the verge of some dizzy mountain road. Also, there were fine bits of realism, such as a cat seizing a mouse in the act of stealing the offerings placed in a Buddhist household shrine. But I have no intention to try the reader's patience with a description of pictures. I mention my visit to the display only because of something I saw there more interesting than any picture. Near the main entrance was a specimen of handwriting, intended to be mounted as a kakemono later on, and temporarily fixed upon a board about three feet long by eighteen inches wide, a Japanese poem. It was a wonder of calligraphy. Instead of the usual red stamp or seal with which the Japanese calligrapher marks his masterpieces, I saw the red imprint of a tiny, tiny hand, a living hand, which had been smeared with crimson printing ink and deftly pressed upon the paper. I could distinguish those little finger marks of which Mr. Galton has taught us the characteristic importance. That writing had been done in the presence of His Imperial Majesty by a child of six years, or of five, according to our Western method of computing age from the date of birth. The Prime Minister, Marquis Ito, saw the miracle, and adopted the little boy, whose present name is therefore Ito Metsui. Even Japanese observers could scarcely believe the testimony of their own eyes. Few adult calligraphers could surpass that writing. Certainly no Occidental artist, even after years of study, could repeat the feat performed by the brush of that child before the emperor. Of course, such a child can be born but once in a thousand years, to realize, or almost realize, the ancient Chinese legends of divinely inspired writers. Still, it was not the beauty of the thing in itself which impressed me, but the weird, extraordinary, indubitable proof it afforded of an inherited memory so vivid as to be almost equal to the recollection of former births. Generations of dead calligraphers revived in the fingers of that tiny hand. The thing was never the work of an individual child five years old, but beyond all question the work of ghosts, the countless ghosts that make the compound ancestral soul. 
it was proof visible and tangible of psychological and physiological wonders justifying both the shinto doctrine of ancestor worship and the buddhist doctrine of pre-existence three after looking at all the pictures i visited the great palace garden only recently opened to the public it is called the garden of the cavern of the genii at least genii is about the only word one can use to translate the term senin for which there is no real english equivalent the senin who are supposed to possess immortal life and to haunt forests or caverns being japanese or rather chinese mythological transformations of the indian rishi the garden deserves its name i felt as if i had indeed entered an enchanted place it is a landscape garden a buddhist creation belonging to what is now simply a palace but was once a monastery built as a religious retreat for emperors and princes weary of earthly vanities the first impression received after passing the gate is that of a grand old english park the colossal trees the shorn grass the broad walks the fresh sweet scent of verdure all awaken english memories but as you proceed farther these memories are slowly effaced and a true oriental impression defines you perceive that the forms of those mighty trees are not european various and surprising exotic details reveal themselves and then you are gazing upon a sheet of water containing high rocks and islets connected by bridges of the strangest shapes gradually only gradually the immense charm the weird buddhist charm of the place grows and grows upon you and the sense of its vast antiquity defines to touch that chord of the aesthetic feeling which brings the vibration of awe considered as a human work alone the garden is a marvel only the skilled labor of thousands could have joined together the mere bones of it the prodigious rocky skeleton of its plan this one shaped and earthed and planted nature was left alone to finish the wonder working through ten centuries she has surpassed nay unspeakably magnified the dream of the artist without exact information no stranger unfamiliar with the laws and the purpose of japanese garden construction could imagine that all this had a human designer some thousand years ago the effect is that of a section of primeval forest preserved untouched from the beginning and walled away from the rest of the world in the heart of the old capital the rock faces the great fantastic roots the shadowed bypaths the few ancient graven monoliths are all cushioned with the moss of ages and climbing things have developed stems a foot thick that hang across spaces like monstrous serpents parts of the garden vividly recall some aspects of tropical nature in the antilles though one misses the palms the bewildering web and woof of lianas the reptiles and the sinister day silence of a west indian forest the joyous storm of bird life overhead is an astonishment and proclaims gratefully to the visitor that the wild creatures of this monastic paradise have never been harmed or frightened by man as i arrived at last with regret at the gate of exit i could not help feeling envious of its keeper 
only to be a servant in such a garden were a privilege well worth praying for. 4. Feeling hungry, I told my runner to take me to a restaurant, because the hotel was very far, and the kuruma bore me into an obscure street and halted before a rickety-looking house with some misspelled English painted above the entrance. I remember only the word foreign. After taking off my shoes, I climbed three flights of breakneck stairs, or rather ladders, to find in the third story a set of rooms furnished in foreign style. The windows were glass, the linen was satisfactory, the only things Japanese were the mattings and a welcome smoking box. American chromolithographs decorated the walls. Nevertheless, I suspected that few foreigners had ever been in the house. It existed by sending out Western cooking in little tin boxes to native hotels, and the rooms had doubtless been fitted up for Japanese visitors. I noticed that the plates, cups, and other utensils bore the monogram of a long defunct English hotel which used to exist in one of the open ports. The dinner was served by nice-looking girls, who had certainly been trained by somebody accustomed to foreign service, but their innocent curiosity and extreme shyness convinced me that they had never waited upon a real foreigner before. Suddenly I observed on a table at the other end of the room something resembling a music box, and covered with a piece of crochet work. I went to it and discovered the wreck of a herophone. There were plenty of perforated musical selections. I fixed the crank in place and tried to extort the music of a German song entitled Five Hundred Thousand Devils. The herophone gurgled, moaned, roared for a moment, sobbed, roared again, and relapsed into silence. I tried a number of other selections, including Les Cloches de Cornville, but the noises produced were in all cases about the same. Evidently the thing had been bought, together with the monogram-bearing Delft and Britannia ware, at some auction sale in one of the foreign settlements. There was a queer melancholy in the experience, difficult to express. One must have lived in Japan to understand why the thing appeared so exiled, so pathetically out of place, so utterly misunderstood. Our harmonized Western music means simply so much noise to the average Japanese ear, and I feel quite sure that the internal condition of the herophone remained unknown to its oriental proprietor. An equally singular but more pleasant experience awaited me on the road back to the hotel. I halted at a second-hand furniture shop to look at some curiosities, and perceived, among a lot of old books, a big volume bearing in letters of much tarnished gold the title, Atlantic Monthly. Looking closer, I saw, Volume 5, Boston, Tickner and Fields, 1860. Volumes of the Atlantic of 1860 are not common anywhere. I asked the price, and the Japanese shopkeeper said 50 sen, because it was a very large book. I was much too pleased to think of bargaining with him, and secured the prize. I looked through its stained pages for old friends, and found them, 
all anonymous in 1865, many world famous in 1895. There were installments of Elsie Venner under the title of The Professor's Stories, chapters of Roba di Roma, a poem called Pythagoras, but since renamed Metempsychosis, as lovers of Thomas Bailey Aldrich are doubtless aware, the personal narrative of a filibuster with Walker in Nicaragua, admirable papers upon the maroons of Jamaica and the maroons of Surinam, and, upon other precious things, an essay on Japan, opening with the significant sentence, The arrival in this country of an embassy from Japan, the first political delegation ever vouchsafed to a foreign nation by that reticent and jealous people, is now a topic of universal interest. A little farther on, some popular misapprehensions of the period were thus corrected. Although now known to be entirely distinct, the Chinese and Japanese were for a long time looked upon as kindred races and esteemed alike. We find that while, on close examination, the imagined attractions of China disappear, those of Japan become more definite. Any Japanese of this self-assertive twenty-eighth year of Meiji could scarcely find fault with the Atlantic's estimate of his country thirty-five years ago. Its commanding position, its wealth, its commercial resources, and the quick intelligence of its people, not at all inferior to that of the people of the West, although naturally restricted in its development, give to Japan an importance far above that of any other Eastern country. The only error of this generate estimate was an error centuries old, the delusion of Japan's wealth. What made me feel a little ancient was to recognize in the quaint spellings Siogun, Tycoon, Sintu, Kyuzyu, Fideyoshi, Nobanunga, spellings of the old Dutch and old Jesuit writers, the modern and familiar Shogun, Tycoon, Shinto, Kyushu, Hideyoshi, and Nobunaga. I passed the evening wandering through the illuminated streets and visited some of the numberless shows. I saw a young man writing Buddhist texts and drawing horses with his feet, the extraordinary fact about the work being that the texts were written backwards, from the bottom of the column up, just as an ordinary calligrapher would write them from the top of the column down, and the pictures of horses were always commenced with the tail. I saw a kind of amphitheatre, with an aquarium in lieu of arena, where mermaids swam and sang Japanese songs. I saw maidens made by glamour out of flowers, by a Japanese cultivator of chrysanthemums. And between whiles I peeped into the toy shops full of novelties. What there especially struck me was the display of that astounding ingenuity by which Japanese inventors are able to reach, at a cost too small to name, precisely the same results as those exhibited in our expensive mechanical toys. A group of cocks and hens made of paper were set to pecking imaginary grain out of a basket by the pressure of a bamboo spring, the whole thing costing half a cent. An artificial mouse ran about, doubling and scurrying as if trying to slip under mats or into chinks, 
it cost only one cent and was made with a bit of colored paper a spool of baked clay and a long thread you had only to pull the thread and the mouse began to run butterflies of paper moved by an equally simple device began to fly when thrown into the air an artificial cuttlefish began to wriggle all its tentacles when you blew into a little rush tube fixed under its head when i decided to return the lanterns were out the shops were closing and the streets darkened about me long before i reached the hotel after the great glow of the illumination the witchcrafts of the shows the merry tumult the sea-like sound of wooden sandals this sudden coming of blankness and silence made me feel as if the previous experience had been unreal an illusion of light and colour and noise made just to deceive as in stories of goblin foxes but the quick vanishing of all that composes a japanese festival night really lends a keener edge to the pleasure of remembrance there is no slow fading out of the phantasmagoria and its memory is thus kept free from the least tinge of melancholy end of section three